This is this is week five, week five of the prologue of Mark. And I know I've told you this before. I somewhat apologize to you because I told you, Mark, we're going to be blazing through Mark. And then we've taken five weeks to get through now 15 verses. And that's not very fast. But as I told you, and God willing, I'll be a man of my word. I mean to actually really start preaching through this at the pace somewhat that John or Mark, Mark, John Mark, sets for us as we go. But from here, realize that the prologue sets the basis for the book. It gives you the context. It gives you the primary content that he wants to get across to us. Now, there is debate as to whether the prologue ends in verse 13 or verse 15, and I'm not going to go through all that debate, but I'm just going to come to you and say, this is part five, and the prologue goes through verse 15. So verses 14 and 15, Mark is still trying here to set the stage for Jesus's ministry and how the transition of God's promises in the Old Testament are now being fulfilled in this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in our text today we see as a preacher. Jesus the preacher. So I'm treating these verses as the end of Mark's prologue for two reasons, especially. It clearly demonstrates the transition from John the Baptist, who I believe is that last of the Old Testament prophets. And yet there is continuity, isn't there, with John's message and Jesus' message. We'll see some of that today. But it transitions from his ministry to that of Jesus, which I believe really does symbolize the transition of the old to the new. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And the focus of the Gospels is not John the Baptist. The focus of the New Testament is not John the Baptist. The focus of the New Testament is Jesus' ministry and his finished work, which the Old Testament, John, foreshadowed. He was a forerunner to. The Old Testament prepares us for it. But now we're talking about this age now where God is fulfilling these promises in the person of his son. So it marks this transition. Secondly, it marks the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry. First this morning, the first main point is John is arrested. Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested. Now, Mark doesn't record that between Jesus' temptation in this moment. He doesn't record what happens between there. There was some confusion amongst John disciples. We read that in John 3.36. If you want to turn to John 3.36, you can. I'm going to just read it. You don't have to turn there. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So Jesus and his disciples are baptizing now, And verse 23, John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Verse 24 says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, that's who was baptized of John, this is Jesus, to whom you bore witness, Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So there's some confusion. Why are they going to him? Aren't you in lineage with him? Aren't you part of that same uh, ministry, that same purpose as his? And now they're going to him, and there's a bit of confusion. And John's answer tries to eliminate the confusion. 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He's speaking of his self, his calling, the importance of his own ministry. But listen to this. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John is saying, what is given to me is not that I'm the Christ, but I am to bear witness of him. And he's come. And to hear his voice delights me, John says. And then verse 30 is that ultimate uh, summary of John's heart here. He must increase and I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thus John preaches to his disciples, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. But the way that this happens surprises us a a bit. John is this figure in verse 5 of popularity of Mark. 1 verse 5, all Judea, all Jerusalem comes to John. (laughs) He is the man of the hour. All, and I've said all doesn't mean everyone without any exclusions, but it means a mass of the people came to John to be baptized. Now his disciples are saying, hey, Part of our popularity, our group, is going to Jesus. Is that okay? Yes, it's okay. Yes, it's okay. But now we read that something has transpired that we wouldn't have expected unless it was here, written. John is arrested. Somebody who has all these people follow him is arrested. And that tells us that there were people that were unhappy with John. And we knew what John said about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, You brood of vipers, he called them. Right? Remember that? They evidently weren't friends. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jews were not friendly with John. But that's not who arrested John. Before we get to John's, the details of John's arrest, I want to consider a few aspects of his arrest. First, we need to remember that He was just very popular. And I said this to you a few weeks ago. We need to be very careful about judging success by popularity. We who live in a democratic world, right? You're right or you're wrong based on how many noses say so, right? Noses, that's the way that people talk. I don't really understand that. But but how many talking heads or talking voices or hands raised or... Ballots that are cast, that's how you know what's right. In fact, we often talk about that, don't we? We often affirm this thing is either good or bad based on if it's 
the majority of the people have spoken. That is not the way that truth is determined, ultimately. Let us, let us hear that who are in, living in a republic and a democracy. That truth is not determinate based on the, the amount of people that support it. And this is a good indication of that. John's truth, uh, the truthfulness of his ministry, was not judged by the masses nor his being put into prison. Let us just understand that. Luke gives a succinct picture of why John was arrested in Luke chapter 3, verse 18. I'll read there. So with many other exhortations, John, this is speaking of, he preached gospel. The ESV has good news, but it's Galeon is the root there. It's gospel. John was a preacher of the gospel. He preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So this was one of the extra evil things that Herod did. He locked John up. Why did he do that? Well, we know that Herod took Philip's wife, his brother, Philip's wife, as his own. He committed adultery. And John, being a preacher of the gospel, do you hear that? He reproved Herod. Now, a lot of preachers these days are very careful to reprove our leaders, who are not kings. They're elected officials. Our mayor was at the front of the pride parade two weeks ago or whenever that was, holding a sign, wearing all the colors, not, not living in love towards homosexual people, but celebrating. You know, we're called to live in love towards them. Love tells them good news. Love calls them to repentance. Love does not celebrate sin. It doesn't. And I don't think the, the mayor will ever hear this. My brother-in-law wrote a letter to the mayor encouraging him not to support sin. That's true. That's a true witness to our leaders. Sin is a reproach to any people, to every people. And John was a faithful gospel preacher who called Herod to repentance, and Herod threw him into jail for it. And who sinned? The Bible said Herod sinned. There's going to be a time if things continue in this, this world that we live in, America, if we continue to celebrate sin, not just that sexual sin, other sexual sins, other sins that we have to celebrate here or we have to almost act in worship towards, abortion is one of those, where if you question those things, you will be arrested, which will cause your morality to be put into question by a society. This is sort of a parenthesis on the text this morning. Who are you going to listen to? Who defines love? Who defines truth? The masses, the leaders, or the word of God? 
Was John a lover? Was he faithful to the gospel? And was he a faithful preacher to do what he did? Yes. He was. And I would argue, so was Jesus. And that's the second aspect of John's arrest. John's arrest in Mark is to symbolize what will happen to Jesus. Was Jesus very popular at times in his ministry? Absolutely. He had crowds follow him everywhere, feeding 5,000. How many people have had 5,000 people walk miles to hear you speak? Or maybe to get food fed to them. I don't know. There's a question. What did they want? They wanted their bellies filled, right? But he was popular, right? And yet he found his way to the cross, didn't he? But the same term, arrested, in Mark is used almost as a technical term. The Greek word is paradidomai. And it's, that's what it means. They took him. He was handed over. John was handed over now. That term is used of Jesus to describe what would happen to him and what actually happens to him. He would be taken, handed over to officials. He would be arrested in this same way. He had people follow him. Remember in John's gospel, it seemed like all these people were believers on him. In John chapter 2, Jesus says he knew their hearts. And whatever belief they had was not saving faith. Because a couple years later, they'd be crying out, crucify him, crucify him with the rest of the mob. Right? Was that because of Jesus' fault? God forbid. Jesus only spoke the truth. But there is a possibility that the reason why Mark makes this connection, this arresting connection between John and Jesus is to to show that it is not a shameful thing for a believer to be persecuted for righteousness sake. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's the worst thing? One of the things that I was brought up to believe is that Christians shouldn't get in trouble with the law. Right? That's a pretty good principle to teach. I teach I'll teach my children that. Hopefully they're learning that. I don't know if I've ever taught them how to live, you know, in relationship to a police officer, but hopefully they're learning those principles as we go along in life. We aren't to steal. We aren't to uh, uh, slander one another. We are to live be- with our neighbor in love. And, and the implication there is if a government or if a, if a leader of a civil magistrate is doing right, they are going to praise those who do good and bring wrath or judgment upon those who do evil. And so that's sort of how we categorize things. People that are in jail are the people that do evil. John is in jail. Much of our Christian heritage has had Christians wind up in jail. Look at Paul's life. He's in and out of... uh, Somebody made the joke that Paul would go around and uh, the first thing he would do when he would go to a new town is check out the prison to see what it would look like because he knew he would wind up there at some point. You know, if we come to that point, which many people in this world, many Christians are at that point. Sometimes it's worse than prison. If you wind up there, is that the worst thing that could happen to you? 
Evidently, you could be a faithful witness to the message of the gospel and wind up in prison. And Jesus says, don't even be surprised if that happens. If they did it to me, they're not going to have any qualms to do it to you. And this seems to be perhaps what Mark's purpose is. You know, Mark is writing this probably while Peter is telling him what happened. And listen to Peter's heart about this very thing. Beloved, 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at a fiery trial. That adjective means something, doesn't it? That means it's not pleasant. Sometimes we get the idea in our head that uh, a trial for a Christian is just this uh, thing that, uh, as I said, it does allow the grace of God to be seen in us. And so we look at it from a distance and we say, oh, it can't be that bad. It's not so bad after all. No, don't confuse the grace of God to overcome what should oppress us to despair with the fact of the hardship of a trial. This is a fiery trial. And he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as, listen, you share in Christ's suffering. I think what we need to see from this is that Mark is saying, John was faithful to Christ when he suffered. I think that's what Mark is teaching us. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Those who suffer with Christ will reign with him also, Romans chapter 8 says. Verse 16 of 1 Peter 4. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian in a Christ-like way, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. You know, a lot of Christians these days are going to be threatened with suffering. You're going to lose your job if you speak the truth of God's word in some places of employment. I don't know about you, but my heart is grieved when I see all of these Fortune 500 companies bowing at the knee of this Pride Month, trying to get a buck for it. But I think of the employees of that company, those companies who are Christians. There are a lot of Christians working for those places. You better believe it. Those are such massive companies. There are Christians in there. I know of a man who is high up in Intel. And he is so torn up inside. He, sa he says for years they had an agenda that was driving sinful morals in the culture. And if he spoke openly, he could speak one-on-one -on -one with, but if he spoke openly about it, he would lose his job. He said, now they have a CEO that actually is a Christian. And it gives them a lot of hope. But there are a lot of Christians working jobs that if they speak the truth in love, if they call their coworker to believe in the gospel and say, no, that's, that's a sin, they're going to lose their job. That's hard. Losing your job, losing your employment. What about your schooling? How much education did you do to get that job? How much indebtedness are you in to get that job? What about this, the, the shame of the reproach of your coworkers and the people that know you in society? What about the write-up in the newspaper? This bigot 
spoke out against, he, he said this was sin. And so we had to fire him. Should you be ashamed? John wasn't ashamed. He wasn't in a shameful position because he suffered in a Christ-like way. Third, there is, as I said, an eschatological transition. John represents that old covenant, Jesus, that new. Second, the second main point, Jesus begins to preach, verse 14. Now Mark is again brief here, but his brevity means he wants us to see the order of things. It's not until John is arrested that Jesus begins to preach. That's the order of things. And that's profound, I think. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. That's northern Palestine, if you're familiar with Palestine. That's the northern part of Palestine. North of Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. Capernaum, Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee. We're going to see Galilee, God willing, soon. Uh, proclaiming, that's preaching. I don't know why the ESV says proclaiming. This is preaching. Jesus is a preacher. The gospel of God. Of course, preaching is proclaiming. All the gospel writers include this same order. It's only after John is arrested that Jesus begins preaching. You can go to Matthew 4.12 as well. For frame of reference... Between Jesus' temptation and the beginning of his preaching ministry, he meets the woman at Sychar. Remember that? John 4. And also he goes to Nazareth between those times. He goes from Jordan through Samaria. If you can think north, he's goes going through Samaria. Samaritan, Samaria. He talks to the woman of Sychar there in Samaria. Right? And then he goes up to Nazareth. Luke chapter 3, he, he stands up in the synagogue. I'm the light that Isaiah promised. I'm here. And they reject him. Hey, you're doing all these miracles elsewhere. How about some for the home team? How about for us? Aren't you, aren't you uh, uh, Joseph's son? Give us some goods. Huh? And Jesus leaves. And where does he go? He goes to Galilee. And there's where he preaches, in Galilee. Now, John 4, 1 through 4, again gives us a clue why he begins preaching there. This is the text where we read about the, the woman of Sychar. But this gives us a little background in relationship to John the Baptist again. John 4, 1 through 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, the same thing that John's disciples recognized, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So what this is saying is that there was some component of a relationship that Jesus didn't want at this time to be associated with John the Baptist and all of his popularity. You see, that popularity got John arrested. <laughs> now, Jesus often says, this is not yet my time, right? When Jesus is asked to perform the miracle at Cana, he tells his mom, my time has not yet come. The time, there would be a time when Jesus would be arrested. This is not that time. So when Jesus sees his popularity, oftentimes this is what he does, right? The crowds gather together and Jesus is gone. He knows eventually they're going to turn against me. The same group, probably it was the religious leaders of Israel that told Herod, hey, this John guy, he's, he's a danger to you. And so Herod maybe calls John, and I'm speculating, but perhaps this is what Herod calls him to stand before Herod, you know. 
He say, are you causing trouble? And, and John says, hey, aren't you with your brother's wife? That's sin. Here's some good news. You can repent and be washed of your sin. Oh, you're in prison now, buddy. And Jesus says, no, that's not the direction I'm going now. I have a ministry to perform first. I have three years. That's going to accelerate things too quickly. So he, this is why I believe Jesus goes away, is because his popularity is rising, because all the people are coming to him now, and he doesn't want the same end. He knows his timetable. He knows God's timetable for him. And so he goes to Galilee, north. He doesn't go to Jerusalem right now. I want us to see something, though, that Jesus is a preacher. Now, oftentimes, I want to encourage you. So oftentimes when we as Christians start seeing things go in a way that doesn't seem to be promoting the Christian church or our freedoms or our liberties or, or the success of the church, we start looking for answers. Why? Why is this happening? What are we failing to do? And one of the answers that I keep hearing more and more of is that what we may be failing is that during the Reformation, we pushed the sacraments aside to, the, to sort of the side and preaching became primary in the Reformation. And so what is, is being said is the experience of the sacraments, the partaking of the the, the body and blood of the Lord represented in the elements, that's not being done every Sunday. That's not being observed rightly. And so God is taking his blessing away from his church. There's all sorts of things that we look for problems. But may I suggest to you that Jesus being a preacher, John being a preacher, the New Testament pattern for preaching, that mantle being passed to the apostles, the, pre, the pastors, the elders, the, the teachers is a good thing. Why? Because the word of God is what is the basis for the observance of the sacraments. It is the means about how faith comes to the hearing. Faith comes to us by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And so the reformers were right to see that we need to have preaching as a central regulative principle of the church. And I don't say that because I'm self-serving and I'm a preacher. And I'll say this as well. Preaching needs to be personal. We have so many resources nowadays. And I love the resources we have online for preaching. I love that you can go hear extraordinary preachers out there. When you go home from work, church today, you say, oh, the pastor just didn't preach at all, at all to what I wanted to I can go on and I can listen. Here's the topical preaching. I want to listen on this topic. That's what I need. So I'm going to go there for some real preaching. That, that is dangerous in some ways. You see, the assembly of God's people, when we come together and the word of God is proclaimed, this is the means, the ordinary means of how God will convey his word to his people. And he does it through imperfect preachers like myself. And yes, there are going to be pastors out there you can listen to, and that's fine, and I would encourage you to find good preachers to listen to. It's a great resource. But that is not a substitution for the local church. It's not a substitution for 
what kind of spirit you need to show up here and be prepared to hear the word of God and receive it. You can, one of the dangers about all those preachers out there is that those preachers can be tools for itching ears. You know, the, the pastor, he doesn't stress this enough. And so instead of coming to me and saying, why don't you stress this enough? Why don't you stress this? Oh, I got this other guy that I like to hear anyway. I'll just go to him. And pretty soon you're not integrated in the church. The preaching draws us together. You talk to, I hope you talk to one another. You know what the pastor said about John the Baptist and being arrested and preaching that? What do you, that seems off. You know, I heard that loving means acceptance. Loving means uh, inclusion. Loving means equality, right? And he, that would mean that you would have to call people sinners. And can we do that? Ask people that. I'm getting off on a lot of rabbit trails, huh, today. But, but this is part of the regular principle of why preaching needs to be central. And that Jesus is a preacher, we need to draw on that. God sent his son into the world, and his son was a preacher. Preaching needs to remain central, and maybe I'm speaking to the choir, and I hope I am. Third, the message of Christ. What did he preach? 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee in verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The only time the phrase, the gospel of God is used in all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is right here. The gospel of God. It's the only time that phrase is used. It's, pro it's fairly profound, I think. And it in indicates this truth. The gospel is God's message. That is, God gave it. I think that's important for us to hear. This was God's plan. Your hearing good news is God's doing. We have a gracious and good God. God is a just God, but he is merciful. He is long-suffering. And he has planned good news for sinners. That's what this means. Well, what exactly did Jesus preach? And I ask this question because it says that Jesus preached the gospel of God. And what do you think when you, when you hear the gospel? Well, I think Jesus died the third day or according to the scriptures, and on the third day he rose again, accorded, in, was buried, and on the third day he rose again in accordance with what? The scriptures. That's a summary. Gospel is more than that, but that's a summary. But it certainly includes his death and resurrection as the center, right? And the Bible says he preached the gospel. It also said that John preached the gospel. What is that? Because Jesus doesn't die for three years to the, at this point, almost three years. He doesn't even start talking about his death until two years into his ministry. And that's just to prepare his disciples for his death. So what gospel is he preaching? Are there a few different gospels? Well, we have to be careful there because Paul says the gospel that I preach to you, there is no other gospel. So in 
essence, we can't be thinking of a different gospel or some other way to God than through Jesus Christ when Jesus is preaching the gospel. So what did he preach? Well, listen to what Paul calls the gospel of God in Romans chapter 1. The gospel of God, verse 1. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's two things that are fundamental here to the gospel. One is promise. Did you hear it there? The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then the other aspect of the gospel is fulfillment. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God, so on and so forth. In other words, the gospel is good news that what God has promised has come to pass. Here. In essence, this is what the gospel of God is. Now, I've already argued in the beginning portions of this chapter of Mark chapter 1 that when Mark says the beginning of the gospel that gospel is in relationship to what God had promised beforehand in other words the announcement that Jesus had come into the world by the angels was gospel because it was fulfillment the announcement of John he who comes after me is greater than me I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelace, right? That's gospel. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's gospel. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's gospel. This is good news. Look at this phrase, the, king, the time is fulfilled. That word fulfilled is pleru, uh, and it's related to Galatians 4, 4 and 5, pleroma, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's good news. All of it's good news. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as son. In the fullness of time, in the full measure of God's purposes, in redemption, he sent his son. And Jesus is saying here, the time is full. God's good news to you is at hand. And what is essentially he's saying is, here I am. Here I am. He doesn't say, the time is fulfilled, I'm going to die for the sins of my people. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news that I am here. That I am he who is promised. Remember that this is effectively what John preached. Mark chapter 1, Luke 3.18 Matthew 3, 1 through 2, John preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the emphasis here, the difference is now John is arrested and Jesus is saying this. And this is important. The time 
is fulfilled. No more is there transition. I'm here. I am the good news of God. Go to John 17. Very quickly. I know you're hot and I know we're tired. What does the gospel bring those who believe it? We could summarize it and we could say it brings eternal life, right? But look at what Jesus says about eternal life and, of course, about the gospel in relationship to it. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I believe when Jesus says, when, when Jesus is preaching, and he's calling people to believe the gospel, over and over again, we're going to see Jesus is calling people to believe him. I'm here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what does that mean? The kingdom of God is the great preaching theme of Jesus. And we're going to see it a lot, and I'm going to talk about it a lot. And this morning, we don't have a lot of time. But I want us to see this, is that the gospel and the kingdom of God in relationship to Christ's coming is fulfilled. And you say this, wait, the the kingdom of God is not yet fulfilled because Jesus hasn't returned. Some people say the kingdom of God is only future. It's only related to Jesus' second coming. And I, I want to preach this as we go through the gospel, because I think you're going to be challenged on that point. But the kingdom of God is present where the king is. And the king is there. You see, remember when he says, John came to you, and we kind of sang different songs. <laughs> John was singing a dirge, remember? A kind of a funeral hymn. <laughs> That's the kind of preacher John was. Faithful, true, but you didn't mourn. But I've come. And I'm the, husband, I'm the bridegroom. And you should be rejoicing. You should be celebrating. And I'm drinking wine with you, and I'm eating food with you, and John is eating locusts and honey and he's not touching any wine and you didn't like him and you don't like me but we're preaching the same truth but I'm the fulfillment you should be rejoicing I'm the king who John was preparing your hearts for the kingdom of heaven is at hand believe me and repent that's good news. Before, before we end, I want to ask this question. Do you love the kingdom of God? What did Jesus say was essential about the kingdom of God in what he taught us to pray? Thy kingdom come. We're praying for it now. We're praying for it now. I believe the kingdom has been established. I believe those who are in Christ have the earnest of our inheritance already as those who will receive the kingdom in fullness that is coming again with the Holy Spirit. But I think we are awaiting the full consummation of it. And yet what is profound about the kingdom of God is that thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. 
Where the kingdom of God touches, the will of God is done with joy and with reverence in the hearts of God's people. One day, everyone will do the will of God. It'll be the joy of our hearts to do that when Christ makes all things new. Second, the kingdom of God regards fulfilled promises, perhaps no more uh, clear than Psalm chapter 2. We see the kingdom theme all over the place in the Old Testament, all over the place. We couldn't possibly scratch the surface, but I think essentially Psalm chapter 2 is a good summary of what we should expect. The nations are gathering together, and they're scheming against the Lord and against his anointed. And God sits in the heavens, and he laughs. Do you realize that's what God is doing when he sees the kingdoms of this earth conspiring against him and against, especially now? Christ is, I mean, not especially now for God and his concern, but for us, we should see Christ has already won the victory, right? It shouldn't be hard for us to see this now. And here's what God responds to the kings of the earth. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is fulfilled, the author of the Hebrews says in Jesus. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But here's the blessing. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And Jesus is here saying, the kingdom is here. It's at hand. Here I am. Here's your refuge. Here I am. Believe in me. Psalm 46 is a praise in lineage with this king. Be still and know that I am God the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that is, be still, both enemies in judgment and his people in peace. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 47, 2, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 48, 1 and 2, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, Beautiful in elevation is the joy of the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And just for summary purposes, I'll say this. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, you and I are come to a mountain named Zion. We are already now, right here, in the presence of God. He is in the midst of us here. And in Revelation chapter 21, we see the new Jerusalem descend out of heaven. Now, Oftentimes we see that depicted as this sort of grotesque growth on the earth, popping out of the earth with its dimensions as a giant square. And yet I believe, as is said there in Revelation chapter 1, that it comes down out of heaven and John says, Behold the bride of Christ. That is, God has made a dwelling place for himself amidst us, his people. He is at the center. There is a time where everything that is 
centers their whole existence and all of their will and all of their joys around the worship of the king. For now, that happens every time we gather together. Every time we gather together and worship, we are gathering as God's people, the city that he's made, a temple that he's building up to worship the king. And this is him, Jesus. He's come.